There are different drivers for the reductions that have already happened in the power sector, and they are largely, as you pointed out, Maggie, unchanged by this decision. And so we're still in a space where, particularly EEI member electric companies, have paths to continue to reduce emissions. And we're closer to 40% below 2005 levels right now. And we expect that trajectory to continue. And we have members who have made significant, forward-looking, voluntary commitments to reduce their emissions to zero and net zero. Welcome to Electric Perspectives, a podcast that explores how America's electric companies are working to deliver the reliable, affordable, secure, and clean energy that powers our economy and our everyday lives. The show is brought to you by EEI, the Edison Electric Institute, which represents all U.S. investor-owned electric companies. I'm your host, Brian Real. In June, the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling on the West Virginia versus U.S. Environmental Protection Agency case limited the authority of the EPA to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from existing stationary sources like power plants. Today, Experts from EEI's general counsel team and a leading climate and environmental law expert will explain how this case landed in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, what the decision means for both electric companies and the APA, and whether it will affect ongoing efforts to deliver a resilient clean energy future to customers. Now, I'll turn the mic over to Alex Bond, EEI's deputy general counsel of clean energy and climate, who will be leading today's discussion with our experts. Thank you for joining us today, everybody. Uh, we're going to be discussing the Supreme Court's decision in West Virginia versus EPA, which was issued last month on the last day of the term. So with me to discuss this case are Emily Fisher from EEI, who's the general counsel and senior vice president for clean energy. Hello, Emily. And Maggie Peloso, partner at Vincent & Elkins here in their DC office. Hello, Maggie. Thank you both for joining me today. Let's dive right in. I think for the purposes of this, I will run through the history of how we got here, and then we'll go forward from there. So this does require a little history lesson. Bear with us. In 2015, uh, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency took action under Clean Air Act Section 111D for existing sources, promulgating what was then called the Clean Power Plan, or the CPP. We'll try to keep the acronyms a little light, so thank you, everybody. Um, this was once the CPP was promulgated, it was stayed by the Supreme Court right before the death of then Justice Antonin Scalia. The DC Circuit, uh, which is where most rulemaking challenges go originally under the Clean Air Act, uh, went right to en banc oral arguments in September of 2016, which is to say all of the justices on the DC Circuit uh, listened to the case at once, which is somewhat rare. Um, but they never issued a decision after listening to, what was that, eight or nine hours of oral arguments in front of uh, pretty much the entire D.C. energy community. Um, they did not issue a decision uh, because of the 2016 election outcome and moves made by the then-President Trump EPA, which moved to repeal the Clean Power Plan in 2018 and meant to finalize their own version of a Section 111D rule for existing sources called the Affordable Clean Energy Rule or the ACE Rule. So just to recap for those of you keeping score at home, we have the CPP and the ACE Rule uh, in play. So the DC Circuit, right back to them again, went ahead and vacated and remanded the ACE Rule back to the agency in January of 2021 in a case called American Lung Association versus EPA, holding that the relevant language, the best system of emissions reduction, uh, is ambiguous and that EPA's authority is therefore broader than the Trump-era EPA had assumed when they promulgated the ACE rule and voided the CPP, which once again was an Obama-era rule. 
Subsequently, EPA sent a memo out to their regional offices saying it would not be moving forward with implementing the CPP, but a group of state attorneys general led by West Virginia filed a petition for certiorari with the U.S. Supreme Court challenging the D.C. Circuit's decision in October of last year, so October of 2021, the Supreme Court decided to review the D.C. Circuit's decision. So in granting the petition for review, the Supreme Court focused on several questions, including two really big ones, which we'll be talking about today, because it goes to what they ultimately decided. First, whether Section 111D is constitutionally authorized delegation of legislative authority to the federal executive branch, a.k.a. the non-delegation doctrine, and two, whether EPA can issue rules of significant economic and political significance without a clear statement from Congress unambiguously authorizing such a rule, a.k.a. the major questions doctrine. So after hearing oral argument at the first half of 2022, the Supreme Court issued its decision on June 30th on the very last day of its term. Uh, That case is West Virginia versus EPA. And the Supreme Court somewhat limited EPA's authority to regulate greenhouse gases from existing stationary sources under Clean Air Act Section 111D. What did they conclude? Ultimately, the six uh, conservative justices on the court concluded that the major questions doctrine, which you're going to hear a lot about on today's episode, um, precludes EPA from uh, doing the generation-shifting approach espoused by the Obama-era Clean Power Plan, the CPP. Conspicuously, however, the conservative majority did not hold that EPA is limited in future rulemakings to only sort of the narrow menu of what are called quote-unquote heat rate improvements, basically efficiency upgrades at a power plant, um, that had been in the ACE rule. So beyond ruling out generation shifting, the court stopped short of opining as to any other measures EPA might want to use as the best system of emission reduction. Uh, to set standards for existing uh, power plants under Section 111D. So that was a lot. Um, but essentially, uh, you have eight years of horrible back-and-forth legal history there distilled into one couple-minute segment. So with that, Emily, first question to you, what does this mean for the power sector? What does this mean for EPA? What happens next? Or what doesn't it mean? That is a very broad question. Over to you. Well, thanks for that summary, Alex. I think that makes it possible for us to have a conversation about what happens next. But I'm actually going to say that on some level, we're back in 2014 again. Um, And we are back in a place where we have an EPA that needs to move forward with Section 111D rules for existing power plants. And they were going to have to figure out what the best system of emission reduction is. And that's exactly where we were in 2014. The one thing we know is that they can't engage in generation shifting, as you pointed out. But that still doesn't mean it's particularly clear what EPA might pick as the best system of emission reduction. And that is going to be the basis of any standard that would apply to these existing units. They need to first decide what that best system of emission reduction is and then set a standard that states will use to develop uh, unit-specific standards. So we're, we're back at the beginning again. We're going to wait to see what EPA does. But it does mean that EPA is going to move forward. I think we'll talk a little bit more about what we think about timing and what possible, like, BSER, which is the acronym we use, even though we said we weren't going to use any. It's hard not to. Um, what BSER is, both for existing sources and for new sources. Um, and, and that sort of is separate and apart from any discussion of the major questions doctrine or what does non-delegation mean. It's that EPA is going to take another crack at this. 
And for the power sector, I think that's useful to us. We had filed a brief, actually, in support of EPA retaining its authority to regulate greenhouse gases under Section 111D because that seemed like a preferable option to us instead of what we thought would happen without a 111 rule, which is a lot of tort suits uh, being filed against electric companies seeking, like for example, injunctions or maybe even damages related to greenhouse gas emissions. And those uh, tort suits would happen sort of ad hoc. They wouldn't apply to all of the companies equally, and it wouldn't really provide us the kind of investment certainty uh, we need to make continued investments in clean energy, which is what we're really focused on right now. So uh, a rule from EPA is a preferable option for us, and now we're going to try to do what we did in 2014 and 2015, which is engage with EPA to help shape that rule. I think the one thing I would add as we embark on what is bound to be an incredibly nerdy discussion of the minutiae <laughs> of EPA rulemaking and development of new Supreme Court doctrines is that I, fundamentally we ought to keep track of the idea that this doesn't change the basic state of play for decarbonization in the power sector, right? When this opinion first came out, I think there was a lot of breathless stuff in the media that was very much, oh my God, what's going to happen now? This power sector is not going to decarbonize. And I think, you know, we spent a lot of time engaging with the press and with clients and others who were perhaps surprised and maybe, I don't know, a tad bit disappointed when we said, gosh, you know, this doesn't unring the bell on any climate commitments that companies have made. It doesn't unring the bell on any capital allocation or any interest in green investment or decarbonization. So I think that as you think about this opinion, there are both the important factors that Emily has raised in terms of what's going to help provide investment certainty that may come out of future rulemaking, but there's also the fundamental underlying dynamics of the energy market that are really important to keep in mind here in terms of how much this changes what we see in the generation mix. I think that's such an excellent point, Maggie. And it actually reminds me a little bit of oral argument before the Supreme Court, which took place earlier this year. And there's a lot of discussion about whether a generation shifting base for the clean power plan was going to fundamentally reorder the power sector. And it was this very abstract conversation. And if you know kind of anything about what's happened in the power sector since the Clean Power Plan was finalized in 2015, that conversation between some of the oral advocates and the justices was really divorced from reality because the Clean Power Plan would have required us to reduce emissions from the sector by about 32 percent by 2032. 2030, they kept changing the dates. I, and now it's been, and now it's been like seven years. Um, but they they wanted us to achieve a 32% reduction in the sector's emissions. And we had done that by 2020. We had already done that, right? So there are different um, drivers for the reductions that have already happened in the power sector. And they are largely, as you pointed out, Maggie, unchanged by this decision. And, and so, you know, we're still in a space where particularly EEI member electric companies have paths to continue to reduce emissions. And we're closer to 40 percent below 2005 levels right now. And we expect that trajectory to continue. And we have members who have made significant forward looking voluntary commitments to reduce their emissions to zero and net zero. So that is an interesting I think we'll talk about this later. So on some level, it's 2014 again. But for the power sector, it is not 2014. Thank you both. So I think it's safe to say, one, things are different now. And second, that we can also expect EPA to move on with new Section 111 rules. And that, you know, like we said, those will not include generation shifting. I would argue they weren't going to do that anyways. Um, but Administrator Regan, Michael, Administrator Michael Regan from the US EPA has indicated that it's his intent to pursue uh, what he calls an integrated and coordinated approach 
to regulating the sector under EPA's air, water, and waste programs. Um, so, and the, and one of this is a direct quote from the administrator, uh, so as to provide, quote, greater transparency, regulatory certainty for long-term investments, opportunities to reduce compliance complexity, and the right, and send the right signals to create market and price stability. So that's directly from the head of EPA. What can we expect from that process? And what are the industry's priority for EPA as it moves forward, given that we're in a different place now than we were in 2014? I'll start off by noting that I, I think this idea that there is a holistic approach to regulating not just greenhouse gas emissions from the power sector, but also other uh, air, water, and waste emissions makes a lot of sense to the sector, and we really welcome the opportunity to think about these rules in a more holistic way. I don't think EPA has provided us too many details about how they want to operationalize that holistic approach, but I think there are some hints in that quote you read from Administrator Regan, Alex, and they actually largely track, I think, what it is that we would be looking for out of a more holistic process. And you know, just as a preface, with all environmental law, there is some limitation on what EPA can do because they do actually have to follow the statutes. And sometimes the statutes require EPA to act at certain times or in certain ways. As I'm sure you guys both remember this, but often when you were trying to explain the Clean Power Plan to people back in 2015, they'd say, why did EPA do this? It's so complicated. There's got to be a better way of doing this. And the answer was always, the statute is making them, right? So there's always going to be this backdrop of sometimes the statute makes you do some stuff. But things that I think really resonate for us with respect to a holistic approach are, one, let's see to if we can align compliance deadlines to the maximum extent possible. Because what we know is that uh, electric companies have capital plans for either retiring older, higher emitting fossil resources and bringing on cleaner resources. But those plans have been either carefully approved by states or are very consistent with um, efforts to ensure affordable, reliable electricity through the clean energy transition. So let's try to make sure that rules don't impose compliance obligations that would unnecessarily accelerate uh, retirements when we don't have reliability solutions in place yet, or cause us to invest in control technologies that might actually delay the retirement of units um, that are slated for retirement in this decade or the early 2030s. So to the maximum extent possible, I think what we're looking for is a vision of what do you want from us on the Clean Air Act side? What do you want from us on the Clean Water Act side? And then also what's sort of going on in the coal combustion residual space so that we can make decisions based on a very complete picture of what the regulatory environment looks like. So one quick follow-up question there. How is that, so EPA's authorities haven't changed since 2014. What is different today for both the sector and for EPA? How are we facing a different environment when it comes to environmental regulation? Well, I, I think one answer is something that we already talked about, which is I think EPA has seen a lot of progress from the industry. Like our emissions of not just greenhouse gases, but other more traditional pollutants are down on, on in ways that maybe we hadn't anticipated. You know, I don't know that I have all of the data at my fingertips, but our emissions of hazardous air pollutants or SO2 or particulate matter are all down 80, 90 percent, you know, since the last couple of decades. So I think one of the things is that we're seeing an EPA respond very positively to the progress that the industry is making. Um, and I think that they also see that there are real opportunities to potentially harness the path that we're on to achieve some really durable environmental progress, right? Like if you can find a way to support us through the retirement of fossil, that actually has really tremendous environment 
environmental benefits, like particularly some coal units that are slated for retirement this decade. And if we can figure that out, that's going to be long-lasting reductions in certain kinds of pollution, because we're probably going to replace that generation with cleaner, potentially non-emitting sources like renewables or maybe use batteries more. So I think that's one big factor is that this recognition that we're on this path, which quite frankly was just beginning to emerge when the Clean Power Plan was proposed in 2014. You know, we really started to see significant uh, reductions in emissions right around that time. And I think that would have changed the conversation in 2014, but we just weren't sort of aware of the larger emissions trajectory it was right at the time that a lot of uh, the prices started falling, for example, for like solar and wind. So I think that was the part of it that was early on in the transition, and now we're further along, and I think there's a lot more faith that this is the path that we're on, so it's worthwhile to work with us. I don't know if you have any other thoughts about that, Maggie. I think the the points you raise about sort of more holistic systems thinking are, are really fundamental and are different, right? I think back in 2014, we, we were sort of in this death by a thousand cuts for a lot of fossil generation, right? Where there were some, some air regulations we shall not name because we don't need to go into a long frolic and detour about them <laughs> that, that were in many ways more fundamental in enhancing retirement dates for coal-fired generation than anything that the clean power plan might have done combined with the market dynamics that you've already mentioned. And I think that now we are starting to have bigger picture and more comprehensive conversations about what's it really going to take to get that next tranche of emissions reductions and how many things have to go right at the same time, especially as we have started to see more vulnerabilities in the reliability of our system. And so I think the conversation is just a bit more sophisticated than it was back in 2014. All that makes sense. So to shift gears a little bit, away from sort of what are we expecting from EPA, we'll shift to what I know everyone absolutely wants to hear, which is deep discussion on court dynamics. Um, so, but Maggie, over to you for this next one. The court decided to unveil what they're calling the major questions doctrine. In my head, every one of those words is capitalized. Um, even though it doesn't seem very clear exactly what that is. What's your take on what major questions means? What constitutes a major question? Emily, please jump in as well. Does anyone have an idea what is or is not a major question? Is everything a major question? I know that's a broad question, so over to you. Well, thanks for giving me the easy one, Alex. <laughs> uh, you know, as an initial matter, I think it is important to put the West Virginia decision into the broader context of where the court's jurisprudence has been moving recently around administrative law. This case was important in that it's the first time that the court itself used the phrase major questions doctrine, but it's something that we've seen come up quite a lot of late, particularly in many of the COVID cases. So the federal vaccine mandate case, the housing eviction moratorium case, all were really kind of grappling with this question of if the statute hasn't really said you can do this thing, can you do it? And so then I think the question is, how do we relate that to what us administrative law nerds would know about how, how we approach these kinds of questions, right? And the doctrine in that sense is essentially an exception to the typical approach of statutory interpretation when a statute is being interpreted by a federal agency, right? In that normal approach, which for you admin law nerds would be Chevron deference, the court essentially asks questions about whether the statute clearly says what the agency can or cannot do. And if it doesn't, then it says, is what the agency did reasonable? 
Here, we have layered on top of that this new major questions doctrine, which tells us in some contexts we're flipping that approach on its head. And we're saying the court will reject the agency's interpretation unless Congress has clearly endorsed that view within the scope of the statute. And I think, you know, the dissent in this case, Justice Kagan rightly points out that this seems to be a new requirement of administrative law that first we have to decide is the question so big that it's a major question. And if not, then it seems like perhaps we're still going down the Chevron road that we are all well familiar with from all of the previous EPA litigation on rulemakings, particularly in the Clean Air Act space. So then, Alex, I think there's the real question. What the heck is a major question? <laughs> it's quite unclear at this point, I think. I think the way to think about the, the language the court is using, they're saying it's something that has, quote unquote, vast economic and political significance. But, but what does that really mean, right? And it's clear that here the court was anxious about the idea that EPA was using a, a little-used provision of the statute, and that's also been influential in the court's analysis. They sort of say, look, if you, if you find like a, a sub-Romanet part 10 that you've never used before, and now you want to use it to change the way the economy runs, that, that's probably a problem for us. And, and they seem to be really worried about agencies discovering new authority where we didn't think they had it before. Um, but I think that the real challenge with that is going to be in trying to think about what, what were the bounds of what Congress asked an agency to do. Yeah, to not just skip ahead there, but how are we going to find that out? Like what? What are what are, we, what are we expecting? What are we expecting next? Like, is this something that we're going to find out in the next term? Is this something that we find out over the next decade, or well, is that an unanswerable question? I don't think it's an. I think what is a major question, as Maggie pointed out, is not super clear. But the way we're going to find out what a major question is, is through continued litigation, right? So I don't think. Any agency, for example, is going to say, well, I was going to do this rule, but now I think maybe that's a major question, so I'm just going to stop. I think agencies are still going to move forward with proposals. Maybe they're going to defend them differently. Maybe they're going to structure them differently. But I don't think it's going to cause any agency to sort of, I would say, like self-regulate. Um, and so what will happen is that people will raise major questions doctrine questions in a lot of litigation going forward. And, you know, very few cases actually make it to the Supreme Court every year. And it usually takes several years, as evidenced by this case, which initially started in 2016. You know, it takes a long time to get Supreme Court. So we're going to get a lot of decisions from other appellate courts across the United States, and they're probably not going to give us a lot of clarity. So we're going to have to read a decision and say, well, I guess that's a major question. And another decision is, well, I guess that's not a major question. And it's not going to be super obvious. And I think it's going to, it will create some uncertainty. And I think we saw threads of that even before this decision, right? If you were to look at many of the comment letters that were submitted on the SEC's proposed climate disclosure rules, which I know we're going to get more into, there there were a number of them that sort of said, look, we have all these potential legal problems with what you're doing. But but the first one is we, you know, we think that there's a major questions doctrine issue, even though the Supreme Court had not given the doctrine that name, because I think that a lot of what we had seen in the court's recent jurisprudence suggested that that was a direction that they were moving in. And, and Emily's absolutely right. You know, there's, there's not really a vehicle right now for the Supreme Court to come out and say, hey, you know, we, we we forgot to give you clarity, and and so we're going to just tell you now in an advisory opinion kind of way. So it's going to come over time in the accumulation of case law. 
But I, Maggie, I wanted to go back to your idea that major questions doctrine was, for lack of a better way of describing it, a step one analysis, right? So you mentioned Chevron, and I think such a weird thing about this decision is that Chevron, which has sort of governed how we have assessed whether or not agencies are acting within the scope of their authority for like 20 years, wasn't mentioned at all. But so you sort of have the, and, but step one has like a step one and a step two, right? Step one is, is the statute clear, as you pointed out? And step two is, if it isn't clear, is the agency's interpretation reasonable or is it based on the record? Um, you were sort of positing that major questions is a step zero assessment, you know, and, and that's where it starts to feel like non-delegation. You know, maybe, maybe Congress can't even allow you to do this. But I keep struggling with this. In fact, Alex and I have this conversation a lot. At least in our case in West Virginia, sometimes it feels like it's a step two and a half analysis, right? I feel like if they could have said that the statute was clear, EPA clearly can't use generation shifting, they would have. And of course, that gets back to the fact that the words best system of emission reduction are not super clear. They're kind of ambiguous. What is best? What's the system? Like These are the fights we've been having for years. So they couldn't do step one. But then they sort of got to step two and said, well, whatever it is you're doing, it, it kind of seems unreasonable. In fact, it seems um, so unreasonable that maybe it raises a major question. I don't know if you have thoughts about whether or not, is it a step zero assessment or is it a step two and a half? Or is that something else we're going to find out in litigation? I, I think that is something we will find out in litigation. To my mind, if you had to choose right now, I would lean slightly towards step zero simply because I think if you look at the other cases where the court started to form the major questions doctrine, a lot of them looked at what's the history of implementation of the statute by the implementing agency, right? And they were very concerned about this idea of like, are we in an exercise of super creative statutory interpretation because we're trying to find ways to do things that Congress never told us we could do? And, and so I think on net that puts me more towards step zero. On the other hand, I think that one of the really interesting challenges that we will see with climate change rulemaking in general, right, is that when you look at the major statutes, not just in the environmental space, but that sort of govern the regulation of our economy, most of them were passed long before climate change was part of the conversation at all whatsoever. And so then I think you really have to get into these very meta questions of like, well, so does that mean that Congress wouldn't have delegated this authority or is the broader authority they delegated if climate change is really a deeply significant threat to the economy and the functioning of society as a whole? Is that just inherent in the things you're allowed to do as a regulatory agency? I think that's such an interesting point, Maggie. And it, it kind of goes back to how I felt like oral argument was surreal because we were talking about a power sector that had already moved on. We also were a little bit talking about a Congress that probably wouldn't exist. So one of the things that happened at oral argument was a discussion of, well, if Congress had wanted EPA to do this, they would have given them more clear directions. But we know that the Clean Air Act was initially passed in the early 70s, and the last time it was meaningfully amended was in the, was 1990, right? So the idea that Congress could just get together and decide to give EPA more direction is, is kind of funny, because we know that they're not really in a position to pass any new legislation. So you could take that as they're living in a surreal world where they're not paying attention to what Congress is really doing right now. Or you could take a real cynical approach and they would say, you know, we know that Congress is not going to provide EPA that clarity. But it is this strange thing where we kind of have to put 
old wine and new skins or new wine and old skins. We have to use statutes that were written 20, 30, 40 years ago to accomplish things that are responsive to what's going on in the world today. And maybe we're not going to be able to use those because it is going to require that creativity that maybe the court will find to be a major question. So that leads me to my, my next sort of question. You, you mentioned the SEC climate disclosure rule. There are a bunch of other rulemakings that are on the deck across, uh, as the president has said, it is a whole of government approach to addressing climate change. This runs headlong into some of the questions that you just raised. So my question is not, what does it mean for those rules? We obviously don't know the answer to that. There are nine folks at one first who will tell us what that means for those rules. How are agencies going to respond? We've said that they're going to they're going to keep regulating. What will this do? Like, what tactically and strategically are we going to expect from our regulatory agencies over the course of the next couple of years? So, I think this is such a fascinating question because the agencies have never been uniform in their practices. Um, you know, when the SEC climate proposal came out, three of us were on the phone, and I was going, "Wasn't well, that funny that there is one sentence where they say we have broad statutory authority to do stuff, and and so this is stuff we're going to do, right?" And for those of us who grew up really in EPA and Firkland, right, you're used to seeing rulemaking proceedings where it's like, "Here's a hundred pages of why why I can do this thing I want to do under the law." And so I think when we think about what's going to happen over time, we both have to ask questions about how might individual agencies change their practices in response to signaled major questions doctrines, and also how those variations in practice might shape the kind of case law that we're going to get out the back end. I, you know, I, I agree with that. I, I do think one of the big challenges is that agencies have never been uniform in how they've approached everything. In fact, I, I think I called you, Maggie, and I was like, how can the SEC not have a discussion of their legal authority to require climate disclosure because the EPA usually writes like 100 pages, as you pointed out. And, um, you know, I think another interesting question that, you know, spoiler alert, I can't answer is what does this mean for some of the more independent agencies? So I've definitely had people ask me in the last, you know, month since we've seen this decision, well, what does this mean for FERC? I, I don't know. Like, you, you don't necessarily see courts really go after FERC's authority. And, you know, FERC does a whole lot based on the idea that they have statutory authority to make sure that rates are just and reasonable, which are also really broad terms. So it would, you know, what does that mean? Is someone going to say that something FERC does is outside of its authority? It's a major question. I, I don't know what that means for an agency like FERC. I don't, you know, know what it would mean for some an agency that's also independent, like the Federal Communications Commission. Because I think that's a thing, is we're assuming that all major questions are going to be about things that are related to the power sector. But we're going to see major questions, doctrine, issues be raised across the federal agencies and across issues that, you know, maybe we personally don't spend a lot of time on. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Emily. And I think it's going to be particularly interesting with the independent agencies because many of them have signaled that they would like to move more strongly on climate, right? And I think it will be interesting to see if we are more permissive of independent agencies who have broad plenary authority to do things in how they might choose to address climate. And, you know, my gut is there that fundamentally it may come down to a framing question, right? I mean, we've talked about this before, but, you know, when I think about the, the SEC climate disclosure rule and how this ruling might impact it, I think in many ways it really fundamentally comes down to is that case about the SEC having fundamental authority to promulgate disclosure requirements that are necessary and appropriate in the public interest to protect investors, and that the commission has determined that 
climate is potentially so disruptive that if they don't require disclosures, investors are missing a major piece of the puzzle and are not being protected? Or is it a case that's really about the SEC has gotten political on climate and they really just want to make people say stuff and none of that stuff is really about investor protection. It's about climate politics and this is a land grab and you really need something like Warren's climate disclosure bill that was rattling around in the last Congress to be able to get there. I love that we have a lot of questions that we can't answer on a mm -hmm. podcast that we're supposed to answer questions. So we're, we're doing great. Um, one thing that I wanted to, to loop back around uh, on, and before before we get there, I will say the court is also very, very patient. So I would anticipate this court also taking its time to sort of really flesh out a lot of the answers to these questions. So if you're expecting them soon, you might be waiting quite a while. But to circle all the way back around, one thing that we had not come up with, and I think this is a nice way of putting a bow on today's conversation between what is a major question and a new use of regulatory authority and what has EPA done before is we have not discussed sort of the role of natural gas, uh, which is an interesting one because in the CPP, a lot of the focus was on how do we really go after coal units from an EPA perspective. Now it seems like that has changed to something of everyone knows the coal fleet is on some level moving towards retirement. But the gas fleet and the role of gas, which both helps integrate renewables uh, through providing sort of ability to react quickly to ups and downs for variable resources while also being fairly inexpensive, allowing for affordable and reliable power. As you look at the role of gas, that's something that EPA didn't really address the last time around. So how is EPA going to address the role of gas? What is the role of gas? And ultimately, is that going to be a problem? I think those are interesting questions. I might have some answers to that, or at least I can speculate and see if Maggie agrees with me. But you know, so the Clean Power Plan and West Virginia versus EPA were very focused on 111D and existing sources. But at the same time that the Clean Power Plan was proposed and finalized, EPA also proposed and finalized rules under Section 111B, which is for new sources. But for many folks, it felt like an afterthought. Um, I guess I'll, I'll say for, on the gas side, it felt like an afterthought. On the coal side, for new coal, the standard, the best system of emission reduction was CCS. So carbon capture and storage, um, which is a pretty expensive, still in the sort of piloting phase technology that has a lot of potential. Um, but people didn't pay a ton of attention to that because no one had proposed a new coal plant since 2010. So it was essentially um, EPA making a point, but without any real sort of impact on the industry. But at the same time, they proposed a rule for new natural gas turbines, particularly natural gas co um, combined cycle units. And that, the BSER was the natural gas combined cycle unit itself. So they didn't propose CCS. So then we, I think really it was just me and Alex and some other folks here at EEI having a conversation with EPA about what the right standard was. And they ended up with a standard that's about 1,000 pounds of CO2 per megawatt hour. And maybe that doesn't mean anything to you, but it's, it's a standard that's pretty easily achievable by that technology. We had asked for 1,000 because we wanted to make sure that those units could ramp up and down in response to renewables integration. Um, but since then, I think the focus has really shifted to what is the role of gas and is that a thousand pound of CO2 per megawatt hour standard the right standard for new natural gas combustion turbines? And I, I think the answer is that EPA is probably likely to focus on that first and then come back and do another D rule later. 
Um, I, I don't think they're going to be in a position to do anything this year. I don't know. Maybe I should be careful about saying that. But these rules require a lot of work. But my, my guess or my gut feeling is that we might see a proposed rule for NGCCs under Section 111B sometime next year. And I don't think that they're going to say that the turbine itself is the best system of emission reduction. I think we're going to start to have to grapple with harder questions like what is the role of CCS for the gas fleet? Um, I think something that has definitely emerged that was totally not part of the conversation in 2014, 2015 is what about co-firing with other cleaner fuels like hydrogen? And, and so I think on some level, you know, it's important to get some clarity from the Supreme Court about what the best system of emission reduction is, even though the only thing I know for sure is that it's not generation shifting. But now we're going to flip and have this conversation about what is the right standard for gas. And we need to make sure that that standard um, minimizes emissions, but also allows us to continue to deploy that technology to the extent necessary to support the clean energy transition. And I'm going to turn to Maggie in a, in a second, but I always find it really interesting that really any credible study of what it is we need to do to achieve a net zero economy right now picks natural gas combined cycle units as the best technology for providing reliability um, because those models tend to be cost optimized and so they don't pick storage because it's still really expensive. And so if you go look at, for example, Princeton's net zero America study, it has more gas turbines online in 2050 than we have today. It's just they're not necessarily uncontrolled. You know, they either have CCS or they're burning hydrogen or even sometimes ammonia, which I was that kind of blows my mind that the model picks that, but it does. So that's the conversation I think we're having now, which is what is the standard for gas? Yeah, I think this is where a lot of the action will be on a going forward basis. I think, Emily, you're right to raise the 111B standards for coal, because when those were proposed, there wasn't really coal with CCS anywhere, right? Like some people were thinking about it and maybe someone had done it somewhere. And so I think as we were sort of reacting to the decision at the firm and thinking about what does it mean, I was asking a lot of colleagues, well, gosh, you know, we see all of these sort of early stage projects that are coming to us for project development, project financing, some of those things that are looking at uh, natural gas with CCS, that are looking at hydrogen, that are looking at some of these things. And it, it it's not mature yet. It's not commercial. But it does feel to me like it's just about as mature and commercial for gas now as it was for coal when EPA selected that as the standard. So I think that's a really important thing to consider. I think it's also really important to note that when the EPA did that for coal, they looked a lot at what was happening in Europe and what was happening elsewhere. And right now, the conversation around natural gas in Europe is just absolutely fascinating, both because of the geopolitical situation and because the EU continues to march forward with the implementation of the taxonomy. And I think for a lot of folks in Europe, it's been a tough pill to swallow that natural gas has been declared as part of the green taxonomy. But if you really look hard at what they're doing there, right, it's going to be a very different kind of natural gas that's very controlled, that is trying to balance the pragmatic reality of the fact that we have a, a severe geopolitical situation right now, and we need to provide energy security for the world, and they need to be able to keep the heat and the lights on in Europe this winter against some really aggressive climate goals. I think that's um, really important to keep in mind, that recognition that by the Europeans, who are usually a little bit um, more reticent to embrace either natural gas or nuclear as part of the clean energy future, that they have been forced to include both of those fuels and those technologies in, in their plans for the future. Um, but on the, the CCS point, I mean, 
one thing that we haven't talked about because it didn't come up in this litigation is that the best system of emission reduction is supposed to be adequately demonstrated. And those are also two words. What does that mean? Adequate and demonstrated. Is it one functioning demonstration project? Is it three? Um, there's also a requirement that the EPA consider cost when they determine what the best system of emission reduction is. And, and we had raised a lot of pretty significant issues and comments we wrote you know, almost 10 years ago about CCS and whether or not it was adequately demonstrated and whether or not the costs were reasonable um, to impose on every new unit that would be built. But as I said, no one was building coal. So even though that rule was challenged, that litigation has been like on hold for a really long time. And so we don't really have any clarity about was CCS sufficiently adequately demonstrated and were the costs sufficiently reasonable to use that as the standard. I think we're about to have that conversation. And that is something else that will probably get litigated. I was going to say that that's an invitation to have very long conversations about the impact of like northern Pacific seawater temperatures on efficiency standards for coal units. But we will not do that. that uh, and I think we will wrap it up today because I think that covers more or less uh, the waterfront on this issue. So, Emily, Maggie, thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening and come back next week to hear more from experts and industry leaders who are talking about the innovative ways electric companies are building a cleaner, smarter, stronger energy future for the customers and communities they serve. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Electric Perspectives. I'm your host, Brian Real. Thanks for listening.